Happy Mother's Day. I'd like our mothers to stand. We want to give them honor. And let me say something when I say something about mothers. So go, mothers, go ahead and stand. Um, you know, contrary, this week there's been a big thing in the news and contrary to what a lot in our culture say, um, that just because you've given birth to a child doesn't mean your mother, any woman who has, God has given that gift of life um, inside of their womb is a mother, right? So anybody, even if uh, that would describe you, I want everybody who's a mother to stand because we really do want to give honor to you guys. This is a significant day. It's a good chance to celebrate our mothers and the impact you've had in our lives. Um, it's a joyous day for many. I also know it can be a sad day for some. The, the video referenced that, and that is the reality. Even mothers where things are going great. I mentioned last week that, um, that parents carry crosses that, that people don't know, and even mothers, when things are great, sometimes carry crosses that even um, that only a mother knows. So we do want to pray for them. So I would like you to, if you could stand around a mother, or if your mother's here, we don't have to necessarily have everybody, but if there's a mother close to you, if you see a mother that doesn't have somebody laying hands on them, would you do that? And we, we do want to, we want to pray for them. So if our mothers, we could lay hands on them. So loving and by the way, in, in the middle of my prayer, I'm going to ask all the, the females, all the girls to stand because um, I want to pray for, for them also. But we're going to start with the mothers. Loving God, thank you for the women in our life, for our mothers and those who've been like mothers to us. We're grateful for their tenderness when we were helpless or hurt, grateful for their encouragement and wisdom when we were unsure, grateful for their correction and perseverance so we would stay true. Grateful for the way they guided us into your saving embrace. Too often, we took their love and sacrifice for granted. Forgive us for that. Help us to live in such a way that our words and actions bring honor to them and to you. And Father, we also know that for many this day, it's a day of joy and celebration, but for others, it's, it's a painful day. So we ask that you pour out your healing and your consolation, your peace on those who are grieving the loss of their mother or the loss of a child, on families separated by distance or disagreement, on families plagued by disappointment, abandonment, addiction, or abuse. So God of all compassion, shelter us beneath your outstretched arms, bring your healing, your consolation, and your peace to women whose desire to be a mother has not been fulfilled, to mothers and guardians who are exhausted as they labor to balance work and raising children, to mothers and guardians who are overwhelmed as they struggle to bring up children in the midst of poverty, disease, or war. The need is deep, so come quickly. Our hope is in you. I want all women that are here today, all girls, all, it doesn't matter the age, I want them all to stand, all of you to stand, please. So gracious God, thank you for every woman and every girl that's here today. And for everyone we have brought with us in our hearts. Would you reveal your purpose and plan for their life? Bless them and protect them. Deepen their love and trust of you. Strengthen them and empower them and anoint them with your Holy Spirit that their faith, influence, and achievement would bring you honor and glory. Receive our thanks and praise again for these women and women in the making, for they are precious to us and they're precious to you. We pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, thank you. You all may be seated.
So it is Mother's Day. I was looking and found a few interesting quotes on mothers I'd like to uh, convey. Um, several of these, we don't know where they came from, but they're pretty profound. One that says, I'd like to be, this is from a mother, I'd like to be the ideal mother, but I'm too busy raising my kids. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Uh, and this is from another mother who says, why don't kids understand that their nap is not for them, but it's for us? Uh, I like this one. Silence is golden. Unless you have kids, then silence is suspicious. Uh, this one is so true of my mother. Nothing is really lost until mom can't find it. And mom could find everything. Um, how about this one? Sometimes I open my mouth and my mother comes out. Any older mothers here feel like that one? This one is from Serena Williams, the tennis player. And I love this one because I had this very experience yesterday as a grandfather. I've, tw I've conquered a lot of things, blood clots in my lungs twice, knee and foot surgeries, winning grand slams, being down match point, to name just a few. But I found out by far the hardest thing in life is figuring out how to open a stroller. <laughs> And then closing a stroller, you've opened. You should have seen that <laughs> yesterday. So we're, we're in a series on family this month, and we're going to continue that series today. Um, this morning, we are going to talk about shame. I do have, if you're interested, um, a notes page about shame, where we're going to be in the Genesis. If you want to turn to the very first book of the Bible, first pages, that's where we're going to be. Um, I would say if you get bored, the inside has a lot of reading material. But actually, if you would keep that until the end, because that really deals with our application. But I thought I needed to start by helping us understand what shame is. Um, and so to do that, I really want to compare some differences between guilt and shame. Um, we live in Western culture, and we are called a guilt culture by sociologists and anthropologists. Um, we're a very individualistic culture, and individual cultures emphasize guilt. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have shame, but our emphasis on guilt. And guilt is intrapersonal. It's inside of me. It's what I feel. Um, Non-Western cultures are primarily shame-based cultures. They're group cultures, and in group cultures, shame is the predominant um, emotion that they feel with, and that is more interpersonal. Shame comes into my relationships between other people. Um, and I just want to dig a little deeper. Guilt, this really helped to highlight the difference. Guilt is about doing wrong, and shame is about being wrong. A person feels guilty for what they do, but people feel shame for who they are. A person with guilt would say, I've done something wrong. And a person who's struggling with shame would say, something is wrong with me. Guilt is I did a bad thing, and shame is I am bad. Something inside. The feelings that accompany guilt are generally remorse and regret. The feelings that accompany shame are of being bad, of being irredeemably broken, and of being, therefore, unlovable. And unlike guilt, shame really strikes at the essence of who we are. Um, it's this deep feeling that something is inherently, fundamentally wrong with me, and that's why I do the things that I do. It's a sense of not being good enough, of, not, of being worthless. Um, and at the root, at the root of fear, I mean, at the root of guilt, um, sorry, is, do I need to switch that? I'm kind of, yeah, if I'm found out, that's where that is. So at the root of guilt is that if I'm found out, I will be punished. 
but at the root of shame is if I'm found out, I will be rejected and abandoned. That's what the root of those things. Guilt, a person with guilt is compelled to fix it. So they're actually drawn to a person they've wronged. But a person with shame is, they're compelled to hide it. They actually pull away from people. Just two totally different things. Because hiding, really, the natural outgrowth of, of shame is hiding. We're going to see that in a minute. Sarah referenced it. And we hide because in shame, I'm concluding that the core of who I am, that really I'm unacceptable. And in some sense, shame is more primal. I just learned this this week, that um, children develop feelings of guilt. We know from child developmental psychology between the ages of three and four. But children develop shame between the ages of 15 to 18 months. So it's a more primal part of human experience. And if I were to ask you, I don't know if you'd be surprised, which does the Bible talk more about, do you think, guilt or shame? I mean, you probably know because of the topic. It talks about shame more than it talks about guilt. Um, if you read the Bible with a shame-based lens, like if you've been around other cultures where shame is more important, you'll be shocked at how much it's in there. Um, a few more things about shame. It kills joy and creativity. I mean, that's without, I mean, I think we all know that. And shame, if it's not dealt with, will become toxic. It becomes like poison to your soul, and it will actually drill a hole into your soil, and grace and the blessings of God like leak out, and it dramatically affects your relationship with God, um, your ability to, rate, to trust in Him and relate to Him. And that's because shame, more than guilt, is really relational. So let me, let me kind of hit these things really quick, and I'm going to, in a minute, we're going to leave this up when we go through Genesis um, because with shame, what I'm afraid is I'm afraid of being exposed, of being proven unworthy. And then if somebody has that knowledge, they might exploit it against me. And so when I have shame, trust dissipates, self-protection enters in, um, hiding and covering and secrecy are the outflow of shame. In fact, it's interesting, the word shame, the ancient um, old Germanic roots of that word in English actually means to cover or to hide. So that's the natural outgrowth of shame. Shame always isolates us because of that. Shame causes us to lose connection, and it becomes a barrier to relationship with others, but especially to God. And this is sad because from the very beginning, we were created for relationship um, to God and to others. He created us with a deep need for connection and for relational intimacy. He created us to know and to be known and to be secure in that knowing. Um, Henry Cloud, if you've ever heard him talk about this, he talks about, you know, when you land, when you're on a plane and you land and you turn off airplane mode, that your phone starts saying connecting, right? It's looking for a connection. And he says, we're hardwired by God to look for connection. So shame totally undermines kind of a core of what it means to be human. So I want to look at Genesis chapters 2 and 3 today. And I want to ask the question, where did shame come from? Um... Many years ago, I spoke about shame. Many, many, many years ago. It was a long time ago. But since then, I've even been influenced a lot by Kurt Thompson, and some of what I'm going to share today came from some insights from him. So I want to give kudos to that guy. He's a Christian counselor. So turn to Genesis 2, and we're going to start in verse 19. So we're in the garden. When everything is perfect, it's as exactly as it should be. So in Genesis 2, 19... Um, and I do want to say, we're going to see the word, the phrase, the Lord God, quite a lot in here. That is his relational covenantal name. It's the name that's emphasized all through Genesis 2 and 3, his relational, his covenant name. So in Genesis 2, 19, it says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. 
he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then he closed up the place with flesh. And then the, the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, like, wow, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his, mother, his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And then it ends with this sentence. Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no what? No shame. Isn't it interesting of all the things God could have said about that original perfect creation. He could have said they were happy, they were excited, things were great, they were fulfilled. He could have said no fear, no anger. Of all the things he could have said, he says no shame. And I think it's because shame is so, it's so core, it's so fundamental um, to how he doesn't want us to be and how we are as fallen creatures. It's, it's such a primal thing. And he says not only that, but they were naked and felt no shame. And naked just represents its maximum vulnerability. And vulnerability and shame go together. I mean, vulnerability and no shame, not being vulnerable, alleviates shame. When I have shame, I become less vulnerable. So they're maximally vulnerable. There's no shame. Um, and I think what is happening is God is setting us up for really the first thing that happens when they break relationship with God, the first thing that enters into them. But not only that, I think how Satan weaponizes shame in part of what he's doing with the fall. And so um, I really, I'm going to leave this up. We're not gonna, I'm not going to really reference it, but I think as we look at this story, you're going to see ways that Satan is trying to bring shame into them and even to start initiating shame as part of them breaking relationship with God. So, Genesis 3, verse 1. Here's what we read. Now, the serpent, and I'll pause for a minute. We know from later scripture that this is Satan. He was more crafty, subtle, shrewd, we could say, than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And what we're going to see is, in a minute, with his tactics, is ultimately his goal is to break the relational connection between the man and woman, specifically right now, the woman and God. He's one who breaks that relational connection. And he wants to take that no shame condition that he knows exists and he wants, to, he wants to introduce shame and bring shame into the world as part of that separation. So watch how this unfolds. It's really amazing. So in verse 1, it says, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now look what he's doing. He's creating doubt. And the, at the foundation, the root of any relationship has to be trust, right? And he's trying to break that relational connection. So he's bringing in doubt. And doubt about two things. Number one, doubt about God's integrity and his trustworthiness, his reliability. Did he really speak truth when he said this to you? But I think more importantly, he's creating doubt about the nature of her relationship with God. And here's how I know that. Because he depersonalizes God. All in this text, we've been seeing his relational covenantal name, the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. And then he said, did God. And that word God, instead of his relational name, that's just a generic word. Like if we said, you know, dog or cat, it's just like God, that God thing, right? So he's depersonalizing him. He's trying, he's trying to undermine the relationship. He's trying to really get her to doubt whether God is really with her and if he's really for her. Um, and again, trust is bedrock to relationship. And so he's wanting to disrupt her trust in him. And she bites on both of them. 
she is going to begin to distort what God says, and she's also going to depersonalize God. So look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God, that the God thing, right? So she accepts that depersonalization. He did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And then she adds to what God had said in Genesis 2, and you must not touch it, something he never said, or you will die. So she's already beginning to distance herself from God. Do you see that? He's, what he's done has worked. Distrust is steading in. Maybe she's feeling some vulnerability and the need to protect herself from this, the God, right? And so now she's bitten and he sees that, so he's going to go for the jugular. What was a backdoor uh, thing coming in the back door is going to become a full-on frontal assault on her relationship with God. So look at verse 4. He says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, calling God an outright liar. He implied it before, but now he says it. Directly and aggressively creating distrust in God's character. Because remember, the thing he's trying to undermine is the relationship that she has with him. So creating distrust. And then verse 5, for God, again the impersonal usage, God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So he says outright, not only is God lying, but that God actually is not acting in your best interest, but in his best interest. He's protecting himself. He wants things that he doesn't want you to have. And the implication is of that, if God is withholding things from you that are essential to what, something you need, if he's withholding that, that God really, really doesn't care about you. He's not looking out for you. He's not interested in you. He's not going to protect you in that relationship. Eve, you're vulnerable, and you better watch out because this person cannot be trusted I mean, do you see how he's, he's just working on fear and distrust, and so he's working on all of these things to try to break that relationship, making her feel like that really, whoever this, the God is, as he's referring to him, that he really can't be trusted to love her and to care for her just for who she is, but he's got other things that are going on. Kurt Thompson said this, as this is going on, I, I think this is kind of profound. He said, before this, she was living in a world of anticipated relational joy. Full trust, full vulnerability, full connection. She simply assumed she was loved and valuable and cared for and protected, and she didn't need to worry about it. She was totally safe in that knowledge and then that relationship. It was just the air that she breathed. That's what he said. It was the air she breathed. She never thought about that relationship, distrusting it in any way, until now. Until now. And his end game is to isolate her from God and he's wielding some of the characteristics of shame to separate her from him to ultimately bring shame to her and disrupt that relationship. And it works. Um, as Kurt Thompson says, she turns from the object of her desire, the one she was created to desire more than anything. She turns from the object of her desire to an object, a piece of fruit that looks delightful, something that is non-relational, non-relational. So look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And as a result, in her doing that, she walks away from God in the relationship with him. And then verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Their eyes were open. They became suddenly aware of their vulnerability that maximum vulnerability they had 
in their nakedness, and shame makes me want to cover, and so their coping mechanism is they sew fig leaves together to cover themselves, and these coverings are simply a way of hiding. That's a hallmark of shame, is hiding. Um, Something we're going to see even more explicitly in a minute. So here's the key question of this point, something that Sarah addressed, and I appreciated what she said. Now that it's actually God is the one who's been rejected, right? She's not been rejected at all, but he's the one that rejected. Is What is he going to do now? What's he going to do, this rejected one? So look at verse 8. Then the man, and his, the man and his wife, they heard the sound of the Lord God, the Lord God, the relational, covenantal God, the true God, coming as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, something that a lot of people assume was a regular occurrence of him coming in a physical form, perhaps a pre-incarnate Jesus, walking with them, talking with them in relationship. And so what does God do? What does he do? In total alignment with the fact that he is covenantal and relational, he comes looking for them, right? He seeks them out. He pursues them. That's what this God does. But what do they do? The rest of verse 8. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So their response is hiding. We already saw the covering as a form of hiding. We see the word hide twice in verse 8 and in verse 10, a very important word. And again, hiding is the hallmark of shame. They don't want to be seen because they now sense something is wrong with them. They've not only done something wrong, that something's wrong with them. And they don't want to be found out. They don't want that to be proven true. And so they hide. And so for now, for the first time in humanity, they are experiencing full-blown shame. I mean, think, think about this for a minute. Because we live with shame all the time. They had never experienced it before. What do you think that was like to go from no shame to suddenly full-blown shame? Can you imagine, like, the shock to the system that was? Just imagine how that felt. So now look at verse 9. And to me, this is the most important part of the story. Verse 9. But the Lord God, the relational covenantal God, he called to the man and woman, where are you? He asked a question. Where are you? You think God is like geographically challenged? You know, he lost his map to the garden and he forgot where he keeps them or where they are. Do you think, you know, on his iPhone uh, that he, he forgot to download the Find My People app so that he can, I mean, is that what's going on? I mean, no, God knows where they are, okay? This question is very profound. It's not to find out where they are. It's a very profound question, and I love this question because think about it. They have just rejected him. They brought ruin not only on themselves and on all of creation. They've broken that relationship. And if God parented like most of us, like me, what he would have focused on was their behavior and the pain of the rejection, right? That's what would have been his focus. And if it were me, my question would have been, how could you? How could you? But instead, he says, where are you? What is he seeking? More than behavior, more than rules, God wants relationship, he wants connection, and he comes seeking them out personally. He could have rubbed their noses in it, he could have humiliated them, right? He could have piled on 
like parents can do sometimes, but he didn't. He wants to know, where are you? Because he wants connection. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, really, is that not beautiful? I wanna, I'm curious, how do you imagine when he asked, where are you? What do you, think his, what do you think his eyes look like? What do you think his face looked like? What do you think the tone was? What do you think? I'm just curious. How do you think he said that? Do what? Gently. Heartbroken. Huh? Concerned. Tender. Longing. Like a twinkle in his eye, right? Coming after the ones that he loves. No accusation. No putting them down. No scorn. No blame. No shame. Just seeking connection. And the man responds in verse 10. He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Um, let me change the order of that to the order of what, the, how it happened. Because I was naked, which is the result of shame, right, vulnerability. Because I was naked, then fear came in. I became afraid, and then I hid. Again, sadly, the inevitable result of shame. So then God asked another question, and I think this is, again, so profound. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? I think it's interesting that God's next question is not a what or a why question. If you read about shaming very much, you learn that a lot of the what and why questions we direct at people are actually shaming questions. Not always, but many times like, what were you doing? What were you thinking? Why did you do that? Right? That are, those are shaming questions, and he comes and says, who? A relational word. So God is still thinking very much relationally. Then verse 12, look at what happens next. So the man said, the woman you put here with me, that woman, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, that woman, and because of her, I ate it, right? And so immediately what always happens with shame is blame and shame go together, right? When you find a shaming environment, you find a blaming environment. When you have a blaming environment, it's a shaming environment. Now, we could do more with the conversation. It continues to have more verses, but I want you to jump down to verse 21. Because there is where God makes provision for their nakedness and their need of covering. And he does it through the substitutionary sacrifice of a living animal to cover their shame and their nakedness. So look at 21. Then the Lord God, the relational, the covenantal God, he made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. What I love about this is you might be like, wow, he took the life of an animal to clothe them, to, to help them with the, the hiding of shame. But this God is such a great God that when he was doing that, that he knew one day he would step into human history and he would give his own life, his own life to pay for our sin and to cover our shame and to take it away and that it would cost him everything. It will cost him everything. That's why Hebrews 12, 2, it says that for the joy set before him, for regaining relational connection with us, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross and he scorned its shame because that was a very shameful thing to die that way. So, here's what I want you to see. Satan has been successful. Evil's triumphed. The relationship with humankind and God has been shattered. And the humans have been separated from the only true relationship they ever had where they were fully known and fully loved at the same time. And so shame enters into the human condition. Um, Pat and I went around a little bit. That's not too much for kids. I hope it's not. That's a really famous sculpture by Rodin. Kathy is here. Um, Philadelphia has that amazing 
museum with so many of his sculptures. This one is there. It is an amazing sculpture to look at. I could show you this from so many angles, how he captured, I think, so well the physicality of the shame of Eve. So this Genesis 2 and 3 is the story how shame broke into human history. And it's also the story of what we live with personally every day, all the time, right? Struggling with shame, struggling with an identity rooted in shame, living my life as an orphan, feeling like there's not a God who really, really cares about me and is looking out for me. So here's why I think it's so important that shame is in chapter 2 and what's going on in chapter 3, because God's wanting to show us, I think from the very beginning, Satan is wielding shame as one of his primary weapons. He continues to wield it, does he not? He continues to wield that as the accuser. And I talked about this about a month ago, right? He is, his is the voice that's always accusing you, and his is the voice that's always shaming you. You're incompetent, you're incapable, you are not enough, you're not good enough. You're unworthy, you're unlovable, and in fact, you're unloved. He's continually giving us that message. Satan wants all of us to live a shame-based identity, living as an orphan. So I want to transition to parenting, and this isn't for mothers, okay? It's on Mother's Day. It's a day that's appropriate to talk about parenting. I just want to transition to parenting, Um, and in a minute, really, all your relationships. This applies, what I'm going to talk about to all of us in every relationship. He wants your children to have a shame-based identity. You know that? Satan wants your children to have a shame-based identity. This younger generation we're dealing with is struggling with identity and shame in ways perhaps no generation has before. And that's not accidental. That's what he wants. And I think that, and because God, he knows that shame breaks connection totally with people. It, brings my, my, it breaks my connection with myself. It brings my, his connection, if we're talking about parenting, that shame will break the connection between a child and parents, that shame will break a connection between children and God. That's what he's after. And I think that's why it's so important as parents that we be aware of this issue and this thing of shame, this thing called shame. We have got to be aware of it. Something that I was, not, I was aware of, sort of, but not for a long time. Um, and really, this seed, the seed of this sermon got planted probably 10 or 11 years ago. I have some dear friends from Hayes, Kansas, where I grew up, a couple with a couple of children who would go with us to Bear Trap. We were having a Bear Trap celebration one winter, and she pulled me aside, and she said, I need help. And I said, what is it? And she said, I've been coming to realize that I was raised with shame-based parenting, and I've been shaming, parent-shaming my children, especially my oldest son. And it's impact, I can see the impact on him, on his soul. She goes, do you know much about that? And I said, I know generally about it, but not a lot. And we ended up having a conversation. And that was kind of an eye-opening thing for me. Um, sadly, it happened towards the end of my parenting. Um, I'll come back to that in a minute. But that conversation started the seed for what I'm talking about today. It's something I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, here's what's insidious about shaming and parenting. Is it usually happens quietly and we're not even aware that we're doing it. That's the, that's the sad thing about it. But here's what Kurt Thompson says, the fellow I've been referencing. He says that if a child grows up in a shaming environment, they die a death of a thousand cuts. 
Is that not really profound? A thousand cuts internally if they're growing up in a shaming environment. Um, so, as I've been thinking and reading about this, just a few quick things and then application. Like, why do we shame? What are the reasons? One, we're fallen creatures, so shame is part of who we are. And what's in you will come out, okay? So we're fallen and broken. So I feel shame, and shame is going to come out of me onto other people. It's just, it's part of being fallen. But also, we pass on, I think, shame patterns, shaming patterns that happened to us in our, in our childhood, right? Our parents had particular ways they shamed us. We, we learned those things with, I mean, it was not a classroom. We just simply, you just observe, and, you're, and you just think that's how, what you do. And then when we have kids, we just repeat the same patterns. I think the, the saddest reason we shame is, and this is confession, is we can resort to it in desperation, right? You've tried every parenting thing you know, right, to correct a behavior or something, and nothing works. And this is especially true, if you read about this, this is especially true with the most difficult child in the family, the one that isn't seeming to come along like you want. It's easy as a last resort to go to shaming to try to get them to do what you want them to do. And it may feel effective at first, but it really isn't. You're actually destroying them internally. You're destroying your relationship, which will come out, become more evident later. Um, and it, it may look like it works, but the truth is it doesn't. It really won't change their heart towards the behavior. It won't change their heart towards you. That shaming damages. Okay, this is kind of a shaming sermon, isn't it? <laughs> I hope you're not feeling too heavy. I'm not doing this to shame you. I, I'm wanting to give you some information, some things that I think are so important, okay? That's, that's the point. Here's what shaming does. It, it damages their emotional well-being, their sense of worth, their sense of self which I talked about in the identity series. It breaks their spirit, and they develop a shame-based identity. It breaks the relationship between parents and them. It breaks connection. Shaming does not establish connection. It breaks connection. It makes for more hiding, for more self-protection. And it breaks relationship with God. I've already referenced that. Because they will see God in that framework through that shaming identity, and, it, and they'll hide from him or won't connect with him. And it becomes a part of, I mean, we all struggle with it, Okay. We all struggle with shame and an identity of shame. But if too much of it goes on, it just becomes a part of the identity. So application. This is on the back of the page if you've got it. I've got six things. Six things with application. And here's probably the statement that goes over all of it to me. Is commit to a shame-free environment at home. Commit right now to a shame-free environment at home. You know, if you teach kids at school, commit to a shame-free environment at school. If you work with anybody at work, whatever, commit to a shame-free environment. In your relationships, com commit to a shame-free environment. In your marriage, commit to a shame-free environment. Decide today to the best of your ability. None of us will do it perfectly, but to minimize shaming at all costs. To minimize at all costs. So number one way to do that is, number one, is be aware of the ways you tend to shame. Because we ha all have ways we tend to shame. And that's what the inside of that thing is for. If you will open it. Now, some of you I know are reading it ahead of time, and we're not even going to read it, but I've read a lot of articles on this and a lot of stuff, and these are the main ways that people shame, and here's my challenge, is to go home, maybe not on Mother's Day, maybe this evening or tomorrow, okay, go home, open it up, read through it as a parent, single parent, as a couple, and just, with, okay, without shaming yourself, the purpose of it isn't to be defeating. I know it, it to, you know, 
last night, Pat and I were kind of going over it. She was helping me with it. And she says, I look at this and it seems to, it's, it would defeat me. I'm like, I look at that and it energizes me because it gives me information I need to get better. But the whole point is, I, mean, I appreciated her comment because it can look really defeating, especially when you read that. You're like, oh my gosh, like I do all of these. Okay, that's not the point. My challenge is, is with your spouse or with you in any relationship, just ask the question, if I were to pick two or three of these, what are the two or three main ways I tend to shame people, my children or anybody? Pick the two or three. Share them with the spouse. They pick their two or three. Talk about it. Make a commitment to each other to help each other, that that spouse knows what your two or three are, and they're willing to call you on it, and, and, the, and vice versa. So know what they are. Um, and again, this works for everybody. Just because you're a grandparent and you think your grandkids are the most wonderful thing in the world doesn't mean you won't shame them. The same shame patterns that happen with your parenting will carry over if you are not careful and don't know the ways you tended to shame. Um, so this applies to everybody. Um, I'm giving you that list that can really look overwhelming and feel shaming. <laughs> not to shame you. But because I wished... In her early I wish in the early 90s somebody had given me that. That would have been gold to me. That would have been gold. So that's the reason I'm putting your hands. Number two, commit to being the adult in the relationship. It is so easy in those tense moments uh, that we get on their level, right? So just commit to being the adult in the relationship. They don't understand how all this works, but you can make the decision that I'm going to be the one that's going to be responsible in the relationship. I'm going to be the one to exhibit some of the qualities we're going to talk about right now. So in number three, parent and discipline, parent and discipline with kindness, love, and grace. In there, I've, on the, that sheet, I've got Colossians 3, 12, and 14, Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Commit to parent with this, and to discipline, to correct whatever you're doing, to do it with kindness, love, and grace, not with shame, but with kindness, love, and grace, the way God approached people. And number four, when something happens, and correction is needing, because trust me, some things happen, right? Some things will happen when correction is needed. Take a pause and gather yourself with that knowledge of how you tend to shame. Take that pause like, Lord, I need to respond in the way that you do. Pat, last night when we were talking about it, she said she frequently would pause, and, there was, and she would, uh, the scripture from Proverbs, that a gentle, gentle answer turns away wrath, I think that's the one, is that the one, Pat, you referenced, like, she would say that to herself, again, not perfectly, but she would try to take that pause, so take that pause, quote scripture, say a prayer, Lord, help me to step into this the way you would, the way you did in Genesis 3. Number five. I think this one's really big. Demand kindness and respect in all relationships. In all relationships. You know, wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, if I may, respect your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Lives, wives, love your husbands. Like, so get rid of shaming from that husband-wife relationship. Don't allow it to develop in the sibling relationships. You know, be watching for it. And to, to, to talk about it, not to point it out to shame them, but to, to talk about what we, we will treat each other with kindness and respect always. Um, make Ephesians 4.29 the, the pattern of your family. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. It's for the whole family. And then finally, to me, first and foremost, is model God to your children. 
okay? Model God to your children. Caring more, this is so important. Again, don't you, as a parent, how many of you wish you could live life backwards? You could take some key lessons you learned at the end, and you're like, man, if I could have started that way, right? This, to me, is a big one. Caring more about their hearts and the relationship and the relational connection than the rules and the behavioral outcomes. This came a little bit out of my conversation with that, um, the friend we talked on the phone about a month ago again and talked about this whole topic. And she said that for her, the thing that really underlied her shaming is she was more concerned with behavioral outcomes, that they grow up a certain way, look a certain way, do the right things. We want them to do that, right? We want them to do that. She said, I was more concerned with how they turned out than I was concerned about their heart and about the relationship. Not that she, if you knew her, she's a great, I love her, She's relational. It's not that she didn't care about the relationship. No parent doesn't care, but she, like, I elevated the outcomes above relationship. And that's what I've, as I've thought back, I wish I would have done better. So I want to tell you, okay, live with your authority. You are given authority to help shape and form them, but go to the relationship first, just like God did. Where are you? Go to the relationship first. Make that foremost. Go to the heart. Be more committed to their heart and to your connection to them than you are the outcomes. Because here's, here's the truth, is if you're more cons- concerned about outcomes and you, you just using your authority, you very well can lose your influence in that relational connection. And then when they get older and you can't have authority anymore, like if you've lost them relationally, who cares, right? Who cares? I mean, you want the outcomes, I understand that, but you want the relationship, you want their heart more than anything. Here's what she said that day when we talked about a month ago. She says, God, I realize now God has called me to love people. He's not called me to generate outcomes. Guess whose job it is to generate outcomes? There is somebody who has that job, somebody in the Trinity specifically. Do you know who it is? The Holy Spirit is the one who forms and conforms and transforms. It's his job to generate outcomes. She's like, I finally came to realize late in the parenting game, my job isn't to generate outcomes. My job is to love and to keep that relational connection. So don't be outcome-oriented. Be relationship-oriented. Go for the heart more than the behavior. You want, I understand, you want good behavior, but let's be like God. That's what I love about that. When they reject him, and he has all of that pain of rejection, the first, the greatest rejection in human history, and he, he doesn't just hold back and feel that. But what he does is he steps into that relationship. He comes to them. He pursues them because he wants their heart. And that covenantal relational God says, where are you? I want you. I want you. More than the right behavior, I want you. So, okay, none of us is going to perfect parent perfectly. Let me end with one last thing. I just was listening Two days ago, again, to something that Kurt Thomas had recorded, and he said this. He said, no parent will be perfect. Do we, do we all not? Parents, do you feel that? Well, none of us will parent perfect. And he said, kids are resilient, and they don't need you to parent perfect. So he says, quit trying to be perfect, which I can struggle with, right? If I'm not perfect, I feel very defeated. He says, don't worry about perfect, that when you catch yourself that I have shamed them, and it's easy to tell, and the glance down, you see their face fall. It's easy to see that when I've done that, he says... Forget perfect and be present. Presence is the most important. He says that's where you come to them and you say, I'm sorry, honey, what I did was not the way to show love and however you want to do it, but you come to them, you seek forgiveness, restoration. So 
again, I offer this to you because this is something I wish I knew a long, long, long time ago. Um, but as God brings things to you, you live and you try to learn and live into them, right? You learn and you try to live into them. So again, please don't leave here feeling shamed. That's not the point. I want you to leave here not focusing on the shame Satan brought, but on the God, the covenantal God, the Lord God, Yahweh, the relational God focused on him and going home being like, I want a parent like him. Okay, can that be the promise? I'm not leaving shamed because of my shame and my shameful conduct. That's not the point. I'm leaving with God as my focus, and I want a parent like him. All right, parents, do you get that? If you get that, can you raise your hand? I'm not leaving here shamed today. I'm leaving here. I'm leaving here because I, I understand I want to be like God. That's the point. Be like God because his story is awesome. So, all right, can I pray for us? Father, I love this story. I love the power of it. I love how you respond to rejection and to pain and misbehavior, I mean, all of those things, and that you don't resort to shaming, which is what Satan brought in the world. You do the opposite, and you seek connection. So for all of us, Lord, every person here, in all of our relationships, may we be more aware of how we do shaming things or shaming words. Through that awareness, help us to learn to, to not live into that, but to live into who you are, and instead of pointing out people's faults or failures, that what we do is we want to come to them in love and connection. So um, just help us, all of us, in our parenting, in our grandparenting, in our friendships, in our work relationships, in, um, in everything, in everything, Lord. May we exhibit you and your character to a lost world because shame is so rampant today. So may we be people who live the opposite, joining you in the restoration of all things. And we pray in the name of Jesus, the one who bore our shame, took it to the cross, to free us from our shame and who one day when we come to the end of the story to that will be shame will be gone and we'll know what it's like to live without it i long for that day so we pray in your name jesus amen all right 12th you are sent as parents and people who treat others the way god treats us okay without shame